welcome to Happy Hour on the Fringe, Fringe Arts is Philadelphia's premier presenter of contemporary performing arts. I'm Raina Searles here at Fringe Arts. And I'm Katie Amers, artistic producer here at Fringe Arts. We invite you to pour one up and enjoy our conversations with some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence. <laughs> Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Dito Van Regersberg, known for his work as a theater and cabaret artist who has upcoming performances here at Fringe Arts as Martha Graham Cracker on December 19th and 20th. Dito, welcome to Happy Hour on the Fringe. Thank you. I'm also drinking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so our first question always, what are we all drinking? Oh, yeah. I'm drunk. Uh, no, I'm drinking some crazy rose tea, sweet rose tea. So I'm not drinking anything alcohol. <laughs> it is 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's yes. only 1 o'clock. Um, I'm having like a, a morning moringa, organic tea. Oh, is it good? It is. I think it's like a honey, honey something. Honey situation. Yeah. And <laughs> we got some real teetotalers here. They're not drinking a thing. I know. <laughs> We're so boring over here. Just <laughs> drinking water. Um, should I just start answering questions? Is that what we well, should do? We'll start asking oh. questions. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I was like, what's the question? Um, so just to kind of take it all the way back, you've been working with Fringe Arts for a while now. From the beginning. From the beginning. Should tell I, us about that. Should I tell you about the beginning? <laughs> yes. yes. What's the origin story? Okay, the origin story is this. In 1997, Pig Iron Theater Company had only been in existence two years, but we only worked in the summer times. We would make shows at Swarthmore College, a smaller liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia, and then we would take these shows to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Then, in 1997, which was our third summer, we made a piece in, at Swarthmore, and then we brought it, instead of to Edinburgh, we brought it to the very first inaugural, brand spanking new Fringe <laughs> Festival in Philadelphia. And we were like, well, we're thinking about moving here, but we hope this city welcomes us and is cool. So we made a piece called Cafeteria, which maybe some of you remember, you oldies. Uh, it was a piece that only had three performers, myself, Quinn Bardell, and Sully Holm. And it had no words, and it was set in three cafeterias to sort of represent the American life cycle. So the first cafeteria was the junior high cafeteria. Then it moved to a corporate cafeteria, and the last cafeteria was the retirement home cafeteria. So, uh, and so we, it was kind of a gestural ballet, maybe you would call it, um, telling the story of these three cafeterias. And um, it had a big, enormous set with a, a cafeteria table and all these chairs, and then this uh, ramp that went along, uh, what is it? The, the like cafeteria set up with like s the mashed potatoes and the milks and all it was all set up all in this one line. Uh, anyway, we were we had been we had been to Edinburgh, so we knew that uh, in Edinburgh, in order to get anyone's attention because it's the largest arts festival in the world, you just have to like run around and busk and and tell people your show is great and hand out flyers and be obnoxious and sing songs and. Uh, make a fool of yourself. So we kind of thought we should do that in Philadelphia, and no one had ever done that before. So I think people were like, well, we better go because these people are crazy and maybe a little desperate. 
But so a lot of people had heard about the show, and we were about to perform the first ever performance in Philadelphia of Pig Iron, and we were performing at the um, the Seaport Museum Theater, which is huge. Uh, and our, our stage manager came backstage and said, we have to hold for 10 minutes. And we were like, is something wrong? What's going on? And they said, there's a line of people to come to see the show around the block. And here we were, we were worried. We were like, will people come see our show? Is Philadelphia the right place for us to, to uh, put down roots? Um, is there an audience for this kind of more experimental work? And I guess the answer was yes. So that was a very good omen of things to come. Uh, so that was, I think that's the origin story, and that was the beginning of a year where Pig Iron did, I think, at least three shows. We did Cafeteria, uh, Joan of Arc, and Gentlemen Volunteers. And then Gentlemen Volunteers became, that was the first ever, during that year, was the first uh, performances of that show, and that show became the most toured show we ever created, because it's... It's a show that where the audience moves around and we can adjust it to any space. So mm -hmm. uh, that was in the '90s <laughs> when you were just a glimmer in my eye. And the uh, rest is history. The rest you know, is history. Pig Iron has been in almost every Fringe Festival thereafter. Mm -hmm. We're now heading into our 24th Fringe Festival in the fall of 2020. Congratulations! It's crazy. It's insane. Where were you working before? If, like, if you were thinking about making Philadelphia your home, like, where were you primarily working? So I went to acting school in New York, and the, most of the rest of the company went to acting school in Paris at a place called Le Coq. Mm -hmm. So I was at the neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater, which is more of a, uh, it's a Meisner-based uh, acting program. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think we were deciding between are we all going to move to New York? Are we going to move to Chicago? We, you know, we are young and we have all our lives ahead of us. And we just graduated from college. We were like, what should we do? We could, the world is our oyster. So I think we were just trying to decide what would be the smartest move. And I think we made a really smart move because we were like, not only is New York expensive, but it's distracting. Because if you're trying to... Um, keep a, an ensemble together and keep a cohesive group working and developing together mm -hmm. it's kind of hard if you have the distraction of like oh there, but there's an audition for a movie over here and mm -hmm. I could be on Broadway or, and um, in Philadelphia things are much more inexpensive and also you have the sort of the, spa the, the lack of distractions where you can really focus in on what you want to make and you there isn't as much noise and chatter Mm -hmm. Around, around the art, you can just um, you can really band together and makes and make an ensemble, which I think is a lot harder in a place like New York. So I think we chose wisely. We'll never know what it would have been like if we had moved to Chicago, uh, but who cares? It's a very nice town. Chicago is. Uh, yeah. So I think we made a good choice. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because when you first said distracting, I thought you were talking about like for the audience, like oh, like there's so much to see in New York. So it's interesting that you brought it up from the artist perspective mm -hmm. and like actually being able to make your art without as many distractions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, but which is not to say that there isn't a, there wasn't even back then a, a, a big scene in terms of people making work. And actually, Andrew Simonette was just here. <laughs> but when we when we perform Cafeteria, actually, there's another part of the mythical story. <laughs> uh, 
you know, it was on stage. Dan was directing, and, and Suli Quinn and I were performing on stage. And Headlong was in the audience, and Headlong was also two men and a woman. Mm-hmm. And they saw us, and they were like, what is going on? And we were dancing or moving. They were like, this is very weird. We found, like, a sister company that has come. And they also kind of chose Philadelphia a little randomly. Mm-hmm. Or not randomly, but they were like, we could choose a number of cities, and they chose Philadelphia kind of. Maybe for similar reasons, like avoiding New York, but um, but within proximity of it. Uh, but anyway, and and early on in, in our time in Philadelphia, Pig Iron and Headlong were really um, like sister companies, and we would we had a lot of um, we encouraged each other, and also had a lot of good advice for each other. Um, we survived. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's encouraging. When you both went on to start schools and be, I think, really big players in the arts community of Philadelphia, not only mm-hmm. as these ensembles that created work, but then also steward a next generation of work. Yeah. And I think those two groups and then Fringe Arts are kind of these like three pillars of the experimental scene in Philadelphia mm-hmm. that I all think. kind of started at the same <laughs> time. And yeah, yeah, yeah. now, like nearly 25 years later, are kind of looking around and being like, wow, we did something actually really big, really amazing. Yeah, and there's a lot of overlap between all three organizations, and there's um, yeah, there's certainly people who have studied at HPI who have then gone on to perform at the Pig Iron, and mm-hmm. Pig Iron teachers teaching at HPI, which is the Headlong Performance Institute, and then both companies, both performing in Fringe Stuff and mm-hmm. sending our students in to also perform things. So, yeah, it does feel like... It's sometimes hard to know what the chicken and the egg is. Sure. But it did feel it does feel like when you look back, oh, there was like a, a wave that was starting to crest and in nineteen ninety seven all these things started to happen. Mm-hmm. Or there were just like a lot of great coincidences in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of created some of the set set some of the fertile ground for mm-hmm. for what was to come. Twenty four years. Yeah. A fringe. Yay. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, in those 24 years, you have done many works, of course, with Pig Iron as part of Fringe, but also some solo works as well. Do you want to talk about some of those pieces? Oh, yeah. Well, so many things. So uh, this is the one I totally forgot about. I did a piece with Lee Etzold, and I, Sarah Sanford was in it, too. We played husband and wife. And it was a piece, it was kind of like a clown piece about, um, I'm looking at, down at my spoon, etiquette. <laughs> and... Lee was really interested in etiquette and how we can think about etiquette in our more modern world. And is etiquette just a um, an old-fashioned thing, or does etiquette just, uh, sort of evolve over time and still have something to say mm-hmm. to us in these days? Which certainly does. If you've ever tried to get the attention of three people who are on the phone, not that that's happening <laughs> right now. But I, what happened to me recently? Where I was like, everyone in the, I was in a room with. Only people who were on their phone, and I was like, it felt, weirdly, it felt rude for me to interrupt them. I was like, oh, they're busy. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was like, this is also rude of them. Yeah. Everyone's like tuned out. Yeah, I think. It that, evolves. It yeah. evolves, and there's mm-hmm. there's got to be a, a kind of, and I think people are starting to determine kinds of etiquette around, around phones. Like, do I leave my phone off the table at a meal? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have my phone sitting right on the table. I'm you do, but so rude. But it's, it's face, it is face <laughs> but down. But it's face down. That's true. Face down. down and face up. Yeah. No, it is. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by how that stuff. I mean, this was sort of. I don't think there was anything about cell phones in this piece, which was called "Dear Sir or Madam," which I totally forgot the title. Um, but anyway, that was a that was a sort of physical theater piece we did at the Ethical Society upstairs. Mm. Okay. Um, that was a lot of fun, being directed by Lee. Um, and then I Promised Myself to Live Faster was a piece that we, I guess we did two or three years ago here. Um, that was a piece we had brought to the Humana Festival, which is a big theater festival mm. in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and at Actors Theater of Louisville. And it was a piece that we made, I guess I've always been inspired and kind of uh, moved by the story of, of um, Charles Ludlam, who was, had a theater company called The Ridiculous Theater Company, mm. um, which I think also is related to Martha Graham Cracker in some ways. Like he, I think I never had read any of his plays, but I saw pictures of him performing in the 70s and 80s, and he was an impresario who wrote his own plays, he directed this crazy company of downtown weirdos, um, and he uh, performed, and he performed most famously Camille, which is like a famous melodrama where he's wearing kind of like big ringlets and false eyelashes, and he, his face is all made up and he looks feminine, sort of in the face and hair department, and then he has a hairy chest, and then he has a beautiful gown on. And I I guess maybe when I was starting to do Martha Graham Cracker, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. that's like a forebear of mine. Mm -hmm. And then, um, he, so in Camille, he, it's one of those classic stories that I think there's operas written about Camille too. Maybe La Traviata? But anyway, that there's it's a story of this woman like, sacrificing everything and she falls in love with someone of a higher class but her his father tells her to stay away mm -hmm. and so for she sacrifices her, her love and she's like she tells him to go away even though she doesn't want to and then she's dying of consumption and he comes and he's like i heard that you pushed me away be not because you wanted to but because my father told you to and she's like it's true but hold me it's so cold i'm dying mm -hmm. um so he would do he would perform this melodrama of as this partially ridiculous kind of like uh, man-woman. Uh, but then people would say like, oh, you get to the end of this play and you would cry. And he was very moving mm. in his portrayal of this, of this woman who dies kind of of love and kind of of, of consumption. And then the sad truth is that, that Charles Lotham then uh, uh, contracts HIV and dies of AIDS. Mm -hmm. So I've always sort of felt like, oh, that's such a weird story where this person in the 70s made his, became famous as this, uh, enacting this person who dies over and over and over again, die, dies every night, dies every night, mm -hmm. dies every night. And then it's just almost like, oh, he's practicing dying. And then he, uh, then he uh, contracts HIV and he, and then dies. Uh, and I've always, uh, and he, Maybe because he's a, he feels like an ancestor. That, uh, that I feel like, oh, why, 
why was it him and not me? I th- I th- there's a real, mm-hmm. like, you know, when you see a person from the, from the past and you're like, oh, that person is related to me in some spiritual mm-hmm. way. All of that was all to say mm-hmm. that we made this piece called I Promised Myself to Live Faster, kind of inspired by Charles Ludlum, both in terms of his big, ridiculous style. Um, it was set in outer space. There was a, a gay, like a gay everyman named Tim who gets swept out into, um, on a dark and stormy night, he gets swept out to outer space and he gets embroiled in this galactic fight between the, the nuns of Virginia who have lost, the, or someone has stolen the holy gay flame. They give, they give birth to um, homosexual babies, but they're like, we need the holy gay flame in order to give birth. And, uh, and then there's an evil planet, and they're the ones who have stolen the, the flame. Mm. And, uh, and I play this evil bishop, who is like from, also from the evil planet, who wants to retain uh, control over the, the holy gay flame. And I'm using the earthling to get me to the holy gay flame. And it's a race between the nuns and, and us. And then, wouldn't you know it, the angry bishop is actually a closet homosexual himself. Of course. Because he was adopted, maybe from Virginia. And, he, and so he falls in love with a humanoid that he's been using as kind of his, who's been like his prisoner. And the, things get very complicated after that. And there's like a, there's like a, Betrayal, double betrayal, triple betrayal, and finally the holy gay flame gets given back to the nuns. Um, and of course, the bishop sacrifices himself for his love. Uh, so we made this kind of ridiculous piece, but in a way, that piece sounds totally just like a romp, which it is. But it, I think there is some connection to. Um, there's some like under underneath layer of, of connection to the AIDS crisis, and also um, we were talking a little bit about um, assimilation mm. and about how as RuPaul's Drag Race becomes more of a of a thing that everyone has seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you can't if you don't have even if you don't have a TV, you've seen it on your computer. Yeah. Anyway, that that people have seen RuPaul's Drag Race, people know what drag queens are. People are sort of uh, very well versed in what used to be more um, uh, kind of borderline or, or underground gay culture, which means in a way that there's a, there's a loss there and there's also a kind of gain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I somehow think we wanted to capture that feeling in a in a place in a in a crazy uh, mythical story. We wanted to capture the idea that. That, uh, that there's losses and gains in terms of, of 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 becoming absorbed by the by the majority culture and mm-hmm. um, this idea of the holy gay flame, which is totally goofy. There, that, that, that there is a kind of weird responsibility of people of the youth going forward to not forget how they got to where they are and the sacrifices that were made and how. You know that Stonewall was a really terrifying and difficult uh, event that uh, then set things in motion so that people mm-hmm. have uh, some more comfort and some more safety than they would have normally, so or would have before. Um, so 
that was a very long-winded answer about, I promised myself to live faster, but it's a, yeah, it's a piece that began with a kind of homage to, to Charles Lovell. Well, I think this question of, like, what is gain but what is also lost is really important. Like, even just thinking mm -hmm. of Stonewall, mm -hmm. for people of a much younger generation, I can imagine people now seeing it first as that terrible movie that came out. Right. And it's like, oh, my goodness, that's actually not what it was at all. Can we erase this movie? <laughs> like, that movie was really awful in, mm -hmm. like, what it did to that history. But it is, in some ways, amazing that, like, people don't necessarily know what Stonewall is that they live a life where they don't have to think about that, but it's also so crazy and so terrible. Yeah. And one thing that I love about Martha Graham Cracker is that that persona, that character, thinks so clearly about the predecessors. Mm -hmm. Charles being one of them, but Martha Graham also being one of those. Totally, totally. And so I wonder if you can talk about other predecessors to that character and how you developed it. Oh, well, yeah, there's definitely... I studied the Martha Graham School of Contemporary mm -hmm. Dance, which... Uh, was amazing and also was kind of like I, I got there right after Martha had died mm -hmm. so there she was even more of a mythical figure because people would tell different stories about her and there were different views about how nice or not <laughs> not nice she could be mm -hmm. and or how much of a diva she was or how much of a but but everyone kind of agreed that she was a genius just some people were like is she a mad genius <laughs> or has she been like or was she a genius who then like drank too much and then became sort of like a weird cruel genius mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but she's a super fascinating figure uh, again there's Charles Ludlum and I guess when I was studying in, at the neighborhood playhouse in New York I was also going out at night and seeing other drag queens um, or not why do I say other drag I was not yet a drag queen so mm -hmm. I'm seeing drag queens and especially singing drag queens there's one who's performed here named Joey Arias mm -hmm. who's a big influence of mine a big I just was like you know you're in scene study class and you're in acting school and you're like there's sort of a drudgery to it <laughs> it just doesn't seem it's fun in a kind of muted or understated way but then you go like to a bar and people are being are carousing and being crazy and this the center of it all is this person who can sing Billy Holiday songs and is also like the most filthy mouthed <laughs> hilarious person and is, that person is clearly having so much fun it was like whipping the crowd into a kind of frenzy of of enjoying themselves and I was like oh maybe that's more what I want to do mm -hmm. or maybe that's part of what I want to do as opposed to just you know learning my lines and reciting them in for a scene uh, or in a play which is also something of course that I do but um <laughs> But yeah, it sort of blew my mind that there was this kind of um, naughtiness that was available to me. <laughs> um, because I think, I, I don't know, I guess I grew up very, in a, my, my poor dad. My dad <laughs> my, I always give this as an example because I think my dad, we grew up in a, in a house where my dad was like, we don't swear in this household. Mm -hmm. And I, there's a very beautiful thing to not swear. And you have to like, actually use more complicated words and vocabulary. Um, but then there was something always sort of forbidden about swearing or like talking about dirty stuff. And, and I think there was something too that when I saw Joey Arias, I was like, oh, I, I really want to do that because it's like something that has been a little bit forbidden to me. Um, so yeah, I think in general, 
cabaret is some is a place where you have permission, mm-hmm. and you, and hopefully, when I'm performing as Martha, people also kind of feel that permission, mm-hmm. and and I, I think there's a kind of like freeing and and also kind of commune. This sounds too highfalutin, but communion, yeah. where there's like a oh we spent so much time on our individual computers, our individual phones. There's very I find that like in modern life there's very little chance for people to like bump into each other and actually like mm-hmm. interact and feel um, what the feel a part of a group in a way or mm-hmm. even when you even when you go to see a play you don't really you feel each other watching the play but you don't really interact as much um, there's not as much breaking of the fourth wall but I know that's one of the things I really enjoy the most about Martha is, is um, feeling there's a kind of uh, weird communion slash uh, meeting slash uh, I don't know some sort of sort of ritual that's happening where we're like we're all here together and I'm still, and and one of the things I I'm actually teaching cabaret right now in the, at the Pickering School and one of my favorite things and this every once in a while you'll even have this happen in the fourth wall play where clearly an actor is distracted by something and will say something. <laughs> or sometimes a bag is like, could you shut off your phone? But suddenly that like wakes everyone up and mm-hmm. sometimes the power of just saying what is in your real life or in the cabaret is, mm-hmm. is, is a real superpower and allows, it wakes people up. It also happens sometimes when in a play where, where there's a technical difficulty and they have to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also wakes everyone up in the audience. Mm-hmm. When they start again, the audience is like that much more like invested. They want it to succeed. Um, so there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of failure built into Martha Graham Cracker, <laughs> so that people really, you know, root for me to succeed at least a little bit. Well, uh, when you've performed here, like you walk up and down mm-hmm. the aisles, there's no audience member that is off limits. I no. say they sit on laps. You know, yeah. <laughs> no one is safe. I'm. Yeah, I'm very. Uh, what's the word? Uh, intrusive, uh, yeah, and I definitely get my leg workout going because those those it's the whole mountain we have in the theater. That's that's is steep. The K two of cabaret. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's yeah, I find that to be really fun. It's um, it's sometimes hard to get down those rows though because they're they're quite skinny. Yes. Um, and usually I'm, there's more like tables and I can easily thread, but I, I make my way. Mm-hmm. People move their feet. Nothing stopped you. Um, yeah, but I, we're, we were talking about ancestors, and then I somehow got into uh, I think you were talking phones. about this relationship to the audience, which I think yeah. is crucial in yeah. cabaret, that like, of course, you're rehearsing, and particularly with all the singing numbers, and the special guests, and the band, and all of that, mm-hmm. but so much of that can't be rehearsed. It's really in the moment. It's reactive with the mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. And yeah. so what has it been like to develop the Martha Graham Cracker character with audiences over the years? It's been a real training. I feel like the first, so it was, I want to say it was 2005 when I first, when Latage, which is sort of my home base on 6th and Bainbridge, they said, you can have a monthly gig mm-hmm. here. We give you our permission. So, which was a real gift because I could, um, 
that kind of skill because at first I think I was really afraid and I think I would just sing the songs and I don't know what I would say in between but mm -hmm. I, I think I was I was more nervous about interacting with the audience and more and more I think I I developed a kind of um, ability to to interact and be playful and sort of read people like at first you're sort of operating on nerves and then after a while you're like oh I can see this person this person would be a fun person to interact with. This person is clearly saying, do not speak to me. <laughs> and then sometimes it's fun to, to say, like, oh, this person doesn't want me to speak to them. So that's another example of, like, I'm telling the truth. And that sometimes will open them up. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, sometimes, especially in this day and age where people are worried about consent, I've also had my moment where I'm like, am I okay in terms of the theme of consent? Like, mm. uh and I, I do think I'm pretty good, just pretty good. No, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at reading people and, mm -hmm. and knowing when they are, when no is no. Um, but usually people who come to a drag performance are looking forward to some sort of interaction, I think. And uh, let's just say I haven't gotten any complaints. No, uh, no probably I have gotten complaints. But, but I think in general, I think that's that's part of... Um, what makes it unique mm -hmm. is that is that you see you see me working in real time and and I, I'm doing a kind of juggling and so that's the risk that is being taken I think uh, and I've done pieces where I, I'm where all the material is set and all the the pattern is also mm -hmm. set mm -hmm. and that's uh, there's a kind of joy to that and it's, it's almost more like doing a play um, but I do think that the audience can feel just because they can smell it they know if this has been prepared or not definitely and they're like oh this is this is off script or this is like she's going on a crazy tangent now mm -hmm. so normally I think people enjoy the tangents I, I sometimes I'm like oh that tangent took too long or uh, yeah I, we're starting to craft how many songs is the right number of songs like mm. I think I used to do less patter and we would do more songs. So uh, yeah. I think our golden rule used to be plan for 11 songs in the set list. We make a list of 11 songs. And then it got cut down to 10, maybe with an encore, and now it's usually nine. <laughs> <laughs> so am I getting more long-winded in my old age? Yes. I have more life lessons to pass on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so soon it'll be like three songs and just me talking and the band will be like, we quit. <laughs> Just sing to some karaoke tracks, you crazy lady. Um, but yeah, I think that, so the banter is developed, and I guess more, we have more and more um, uh, repertory yeah. in terms of music. I mean, so 2005 was when we started. We're in 2009. Yeah, we're like over 14 years of doing it once a month, plus shows here, shows other places, but now it's just pub in New York, so... There's a lot of material there, so yeah. It, now I kind of have to like go through the encyclopedia of set lists. I keep every set list, mm. and every once in a while, Max, who styles me and often makes my clothes, will be like, "That was a particularly good set list. Remember that one?" Mm -hmm. She's like, "Asterisk that one." <laughs> um, so I do, and Max also uh, she's watched a lot of shows. Poor, poor thing, and she's like, "Oh, the rule." For her, the max rule is like, oh, Martha Graham Cracker is all about flirting. 
and that is, you have to do that mm-hmm. in the begin towards the beginning of the show, and then everything like follows from that. Because mm-hmm. um, different different cabaret performers have different presences, obviously, and different kinds of like even like within flirting, there's like various there's like more innocent flirting, there's more like aggressive sexual flirting, there's um, and I think of Martha's more of a romantic, which is maybe why also people haven't complained too much about her being handsy. I think she's much more like, do you want to fall in love with me? Mm-hmm. Can we fall in love with each other? As opposed yeah. to like, do you want a bone? Which is fun. <laughs> and I'm sure there are cabaret artists who are more down and dirty and like, let's, let's make it happen tonight. Um, yeah, and there are... There are there's just so many kinds of cabaret singers, some who are much more aggressive and much more like angry and some that are more like kind of introverted and quiet and I don't know, it's it's such an interesting form because it can really absorb a lot of um, kinds of presences. Mm-hmm. There's like, I was talking about, to my class about this just the other day that there's like some cabaret singers who are very, I think of them as introverted maybe or like they are not pushing out to the audience. They're like, they're drawing. They're like, out. come into me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they sing very quietly, or they like speak very quietly, or they're like really thoughtful. And I love that kind of performer, but I also love the kind of performer who's like, I'm crazy. I'm coming. I'm gonna. I'm obviously more in maybe the extroverted camp, but I like come and I like touch everyone, and I'm like talking about you and you, and I'm gonna. You're not safe. I'm coming to get you. Um, <laughs> but I feel like. Even a Martha show has both of those in the spectrum, and they're definitely. I, I feel like it's not a complete Martha show unless there's a there is a moment of introspection or mm-hmm. sadness or some sort of emotion that's not just like. I'm yeah. so excited to flirt with everyone, <laughs> which is a primary color. But uh, yeah, like for a long time we've been doing this medley called the Beatles medley, where we sing. Beatles songs, but we do them in different arrangements, and we do a version of Ticket to Ride that's very sad and very mm-hmm. slow, um, and I always love that version, because not only is it like, oh, I'm hearing this song in an entirely new way, but also it, it kind of allows you to to like jump on the, on the bandwagon of, of her heartbreak, mm-hmm. so she's, she's a clown and wants you to laugh, and I mean, I think one of the things that people often hopefully say is that my face hurts from laughing so much, and Mm -hmm. that's the main thing I want Mm -hmm. people to to come away with. But sometimes people are like, oh my god, that song made me cry, or that song made me really feel something deeply, um, it made me feel sorry for Martha, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's also part of the the colors of, of a successful Martha Cabaret. <laughs> well, I think now is the right time to talk about what audiences can see this upcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. The last two shows that we have here at Fringe Arts, mm-hmm. uh, Coral Extravaganza mm-hmm. on the 19th, and then your last show of 2019 last on show. the 20th. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about who's going to be there? Uh, yes. So uh, it's going to be a quartet of, of background singers, as Patti LaBelle would say. Uh, uh, Jess Johnson, Rachel Camp, Alex Bechtel, and Jamie Branagh are all going to sing um, in arrangements by various members of the band. 
and I'm excited about that. We're going to have some new tunes. I think Alex Bechtel is going to arrange a tune. Um, and I'm a sucker for harmony, so they're going to be singing four-part harmony. It's going to be really lovely. Uh, School of Music, School of Rock, uh, they're going to sing a song with me. I won't tell you what it is, but it's very hard rock. Um, Shannon Turner from Glitter and Garbage is going to sing, I think, at least a couple of duets and maybe a solo. Yes. Um, with me, Ernest Stewart, who often is on the trombone, will be sliding his big long sliding thing on stage. And then, this is always very, very heartwarming, we hope. Um, children of the members of the band, uh, two, the two children of Victor, our pianist, and the one child of Andrew Nelson on bass, they will be they will be playing their instruments, which are harp, cello, and piano. As I think, as Shannon and I are singing, we got to rehearse that, <laughs> but we will. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and that yeah, that's that's what you have to look forward to. And I will say it's Martha's last show of 2019, but also of the whole decade. Oh my God! Oh. Yeah. Last wow. show of the 2010s. Last show of the 2010s. <laughs> Is that what we're calling this? I, I don't know. <laughs> the teens. The teens. The teens. Like teens. Like yeah, because then we're in our 2020s. Our 2020s. Yeah. Hindsight is 2020. Oh, good vision coming forward. <laughs> I hope. I mean, yeah, there's something I really want to see in my rear view mirror. And that's that is the praise. True. <laughs> uh, oh, and I should also say that this December, the fir for the first time, I, I wrote... Um, uh, an album of original tunes called Lashed But Not Leashed which is now available for pre-order on, on uh, Bandcamp and will be streaming on all your streaming apps mm -hmm. uh, the album is called Lashed But Not Leashed and I wrote the songs um, at the Kimmel Center in the residency with Eliza Hardy-Jones David Sweeney and Vince Federici uh, and we will be doing an album release on twelve twelve at the Kimmel Center, so come check that out. I should be plugging something else, I suppose, but <laughs> but I can plug the album, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Please do yeah. check out the album and then come to Fringe the nineteenth yes. and the twentieth, and make sure you get tickets for both because they are two very different shows. That's true. That's true. And uh, no, I'm I'm excited. I, I've many dreams have come true here at the Fringe, mm -hmm. Fringe Arts Theater. Uh, I think this was the first time, first place where I got to sing with a string quartet, and mm -hmm. that was a and it was amazing, and it was really like a pinch me moment because you know my parents are very um, <laughs> tolerant of all the rock and roll, but they really love classical music. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is a moment where my parents will be super proud because mm -hmm. they'll be like, you're you're actually playing with um, classical classical instruments, and, it was, and it's just. So arresting to hear like a string quartet do its thing, and mm -hmm. and then I'm like, I'm gonna sing with these people. So that's that's a dream that's come true here. I sung with a choir. I sang with a choir here. I sang while members of Ballet X danced here. Mm -hmm. uh, other dreams. I have other dreams though. What they? <laughs> I mean, you know, like yeah. I don't know. What should should I? Enter on a horse. Uh, <laughs> so many possibilities. I've seen you like descending from the ceiling. Yes. Like, like an angel. Oh, Raina. Uh, 
Yeah. Exactly, exactly with wings that actually function and yeah. operate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe Yannick mm. from the orchestra would, mm. would conduct me. Collaborations in the future. He's real cute. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I have dreams. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, a bunch of xylophones. No. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's other dreams to, to come. Maybe Rufus Wainwright will come and sing a duet with me. I was hearing that duets are the future. Duets are the future. Yeah, I've heard that too recently. 2020, so <laughs> much to look forward to. Yeah, the two and then the other two. Exactly. So maybe the next uh, dream is either that I arrive as an angel from mm -hmm. the ceiling, or horse, arrive on a horse, or singing horse, or <laughs> um, duets with famous people like, hey, Rufus Wainwright, hey, um, who else would be cool? Amy Mann, my favorite. Mm. Hey, Mary J. Blige. <laughs> you want to come sing a song with me? Well, you know. stay tuned for future Martha dates and dreams to be announced. That's right, maybe Pat on the Bell. Yeah, yeah. Where's my background singers? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you, you don't know what I'm talking about. I know. Oh, you, you don't know? So, everyone, look this up. There's a video, I think it's from the 90s. It's like... Yeah, the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. She is singing um, "This Christmas," da, 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 da. and um, not she starts singing. The band comes in, but her background singers don't come in, and the guy who's been who has the uh, lyrics on pieces of paper isn't moving them. Oh, like the the and she's yeah. like panicking. She's like, "Next car, next car!" <laughs> and when she doesn't know what the lyrics are, she's like. <laughs> and she's just like hoping that she can just do a pat, pat on the bell to cover and then she's like oh my god there's a moment where she definitely says oh my god where you're like pat the bell you want to start over don't you but it was live so she couldn't and then they come the background singers eventually arrive you're like to the stage manager not check what's going on it's recommended holiday viewing okay pat on the bell um, well, so we have one, I think, final question, mm. um, and perhaps we can invite Martha to answer this question. Yes. Uh, we are wondering, what are your highbrow and lowbrow inspirations for your work? All right. Well, sometimes, <laughs> to really help me, I, I, I like doing this old-timey voice, and that sort of helps me go, I have a mushy mouth voice, and I'm, like, I'm a little tired and a little drunk. Oh, God, what are my highbrow and lowbrow low inspirations? Well, I have mentioned Pat of the Bell, messing up. That's an inspiration <laughs> because it, I'm, I love nothing more than failing, but then succeeding, then failing, then succeeding. Um, what else do I love? What's highbrow? Shakespeare's highbrow. I once was in a Starbucks, and Helen Mirren was in the same Starbucks in New York City, and um, I went up to him and I said, you're great, you're, you don't know who I am, I'm also great, and one day we should do a duet, which she, did, <laughs> she didn't know about, but she's, my people are talking to her people. Um, she's a very attractive woman. I don't, I don't know if she can sing a lick. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, so she's highbrow, she's done Shakespeare. I've done Shakespeare, I can do Shakespeare. You know what I should do? I really want to do, I've talked about this with my dear friend Alex Tora who does, um, what's it called? Team Sunshine. Yes, but what's uh, the Sincerity Project. Mm -hmm. He was like, 
you know what I'd love to do with Martha Graham Cracker? And I said, what? And he said, I would like to see you as Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra by Shakespeare. Mm. And then I was like, could I put some pop songs in? He was like, of course you could. So that could be something to look forward to. Think about that one. And then, oh, I've also talked to Eric Jaffe a little bit about Evita. Now I'd love to play Evita. We'll see if he'll return my call. And then uh, Lowbrow, uh, Lowbrow. I don't know if Dolly Parton is Lowbrow, but I love this new. Have you have you listened to Dolly Parton's America? It's a podcast. No. It's so good. It's great. It's so good. It's very <laughs> inspiring and makes for a very dimensional figure. Talks about my favorite movie, Nine to Five, which if you haven't seen and you don't know anything about feminism, watch it and you'll understand what the heck is going on. Uh, so 9 to 5 is a movie I watched a lot as a child because I was sort of a latchkey child. It's fine. And uh, <laughs> and so I watched that movie over and over again on my VHS player, which, do you know what that is? Yeah. VHS, okay. Uh, <laughs> what are my other lowbrow inspirations? Let's see. Um, all I can think of is cheap underwear at Target. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love cheap underwear, buying cheap underwear at Target. Yeah. It's important. And who doesn't? I go to Costco. Are you, and you get your underwear at Costco? Yeah. Value. They have value packs. You first. Wow. Is it comfy? Do you have to wash it first or you just put it on? Just put it on. <laughs> they also have really good pajamas. That's the, high, that's the most highbrow thing you'll hear all day. Uh, I also, oh, and I have not tried it yet, but I was, my stomach was growling. I haven't eaten lunch yet. And I hear the new chicken sandwich at Popeye's is incredible. It's a limited edition. The secret is three pickles instead of two. Aioli sauce. Mm. And you can choose whether you want a spicy breast or a regular breast. And a brioche bun. And if that isn't the most highbrow thing I could say, brioche bun. Right? Yeah, well, you, you heard it here, people. That sounds amazing. Run to your nearest Popeyes. I'll be there singing a song. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Happy Hour on the Fringe. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and download the Fringe Arts app. Visit FringeArts.com to see our upcoming programming, including the Martha Graham Cracker Cabaret. yippee -i -yay. December 19th and 20th. Get Woo. your tickets, people. <laughs> Thank you. Do it. <laughs>